good morning, everyone, and welcome to Peace, the United Methodist community. We are so excited that you are with us. My name is Jason Steffenhagen. I'm the lead pastor here. We're in the middle of a series we're calling On Your Side, looking at the Beatitudes of Jesus. And I'm going to read from the beginning of that that narrative in Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to dive in. So here's our sacred story reading for today. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, some of you Bible scholars out there are are probably sitting there saying, well, he skipped a few. Um, there's There's a lot more between verses three and nine, and he didn't go in order. You're right, we didn't go in order. I pulled out and rearranged these with intention. On October 30th, it's All Saints Sunday, and I felt it was appropriate to save Blessed Are Those Who Mourn for October 30th. And then I thought since we're having this 60th gathering and we're all hanging out together, we should talk about being peacemakers because, I don't know, it's kind of the name of the church. So here we are rearranging and, and kind of going with the flow. And, and so we're going to cover all these this fall. So if you are interested in joining us on this series, we're going to be posting these online, sending them out in our weekly um, a newsletter. And so you can find the different sermon series as we go through it. So as I mentioned, we're calling this On Your Side because the way we're approaching the Beatitudes of Jesus is not that these are things that we should just simply overcome and get, get by and get rid of. Jesus isn't inviting us to say, you know what, we need to move on from mourning, or we need to move on from being a peacemaker, we need to move on from being poor in spirit. Instead, instead, two thoughts. One, there is something unique about this place of being poor in spirit, being meek, being a peacemaker, that God is saying, I am uniquely showing up in that space. Secondly, We're being invited into that space. Jesus is laying out the framework for what this kind of new movement of love and reconciliation and justice and and grace and mercy is all about. And if you want to know what is this movement of Jesus all about, it's right here, Matthew chapter 5, and these ideas. And so if you're wondering, I don't know what it means to be a follower of Christ, do this. Follow these ideas. Be poor in spirit. What did we mean by that? Get curious. Being poor in spirit means that you recognize, I don't know it all, and I got more to learn. I have more to absorb. I have more to understand as I navigate being a spiritual person. And so I need to get curious about things. What does it mean to be the meek? It means that you're humble. The humble people are the ones that have ultimate respect for others with creation and help move things forward. We might think it's the powerful, and yes, they seem to have the upper hand in the moment, but in the long run, the arc of history is going to move towards the humble and the just, those who are willing to be respectful of others and God's creation as we move forward. So with that comes being a peacemaker. And I'm calling this almost out of cheeks. And you're probably like, what in the world is he talking about? I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But that's what I'm titling this message, almost out of cheeks. Now, you might be thinking, in, you know, right off the top of head, well, maybe he's going to talk about turning the other cheek. Yes, I am. I'm going to talk about turning the other cheek. And if we've participated in the world at all, if you've tried to turn the other cheek, you're probably almost out of cheeks. And we only have four. And that was a crude joke on a Sunday morning. I'm sorry about that. 
We are almost out of cheeks in turning the other cheek. It is exhausting. So the thing about being a peacemaker is that on the surface, it seems like the most obvious beatitude. Well, of course we should be a peacemaker. I think it's the hardest beatitude. I think it's the hardest beatitude because it's so easy to not be peaceful. And in so many ways, we default to not being peaceful. I have two little boys, Matios and Mishnaiter, one's 12, one's seven. That age disparity is both sometimes a blessing and sometimes it's a curse. Um, they like to argue. They like to not get along. They like to get mad at each other. They very rarely like to play together. And I really wish they would because it's so much more peaceful in the house when they actually show kindness and humility towards one another, when they invite one another into their space. Instead, it's usually slamming doors, yelling, it's tattling, it's all of the things. And typically, when they start to kind of go beyond just the tattling and the, the you know, kind of negative talking, they suddenly will start, you know, throwing fists and pushing and shoving and all of that. And here's the thing about fighting when you're a little kid is that no one ever says, you know what, I'm going to let you have the last word. I'm going to let you throw the last punch. You know what, you push me down. I'm just going to walk it off and walk away. I've never seen one of my kids walk it off and walk away. They just don't do that. Instead, they pop up and they're like, you think you can do that to me? I'll show you. And it's just charge. And you know what's really interesting is that the seven-year-old is the most ornery of the bunch and thinks he can take the 12-year-old. The 12-year-old's an offensive lineman for the seventh grade football team. He's a big kid. And yet the little seven-year-old, who probably weighs a third of, his, of, his, of him, thinks he can take him, legitimately thinks he can take his older brother and tries all the time. Here's the thing. There's this idea called the myth of redemptive violence. The myth of redemptive violence is that the next act of violence will bring about redemption. That if I go either equally or over what you did, you'll succumb and then we'll suddenly be at a peaceful place. Now, as brothers, this does not exist. There is no such thing as a redemptive act of violence. There's no shove, push, there's no you know, bad language, there's no name calling that ever reaches a peaceful place. What that typically reaches is people being in their 40s and 50s and not talking to each other for 10 years. That's what typically happens. And some of you are nodding because you've experienced this in your own homes. I know that I am a part of a family history that has some of these long-standing disagreements to the point where you ask, what are you disagreeing about? Well, 20 years ago, I don't know why my voice just changed that much, but it just sounds like my uncle or something, I don't know, or my, or my great uncle, I don't know. Uh, but it's like there's this long past history and people don't even recall where it started or who started it, but they're like, well, they did this. Well, then what did you do? Well, then I did this. And what did they do? Well, then they did. Oh my goodness. Did ever any, any of it ever work out? Did any of it resolve in like Christmases where everyone was sitting around and sharing a meal together? No, they haven't been invited to Christmas for 20 years. Okay. Do you think that's a problem? No, it's their fault. <sighs> you know, it just goes on and on and on. And we see this in families. We see this in relationships. We see this with nations. We see this world, world history over and over and over and over. This myth of redemptive violence, that the next act of violence will land us in a place of peace. And it never does. Peace is more than an absence of violence, but a movement towards 
shalom. If our goal is simply to remove the violence, which if that were all we did, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we've arrived. If we simply stopped fighting, if we simply stopped picking up the sword, pointing the gun, if we simply said, you know what, I'm not going to respond right now because it's unhealthy. If that's all we did, then we are in a much better place. That's step one. But that's not the goal. Simply to have the absence of violence. Peace is about bringing forward shalom. And shalom is this Jewish word that means holistic, justice-infused relationship with God, with others, within ourselves, and with all of creation. There's this big idea of healthy relational dynamics. My friend and I have talked about this with those of you that are regular attenders here. We talk a lot about reconciliation. Reconciliation, according to Dr. Sean Moore, who's down in South Minneapolis, is about the removal of barriers that get in the way to healthy relationship. And so when we talk about being a reconciling community, it's not enough to just say, you're welcome here, which you are, but also what are the barriers that have gotten in the way from you experiencing the fullness of relationship? Because if there's a barrier, I want to remove it. So reconciliation is the removal of the barrier so that we can move towards peace. We can move towards shalom. And as I mentioned, Jesus talked a little bit about doing this. And so I want to share with you three stories, and I'm actually going to get a volunteer, and he doesn't know I'm going to do this, but I'm going to pick on him because he's our senior in the house. So Brody, I need you to come up here. I'm sorry. Just got to do it. Um, I'm forcing you. I should have asked if he was wanted to volunteer, given him some autonomy in this, but I, I decided not to. So later on in the Sermon on the Mount, you can stand right here. Thank you. This is Brody, everybody. Big clap for Brody. So later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us three illustrations back to back to back really quickly. Turn the other cheek, take off your coat, and go the extra mile. I'm going to share a little bit about each of those. So the first one is that when someone hits you, turn your other cheek. What is going on here? It just sounds like I'm supposed to just take one on the chin and then take another one on the chin. Jesus is actually doing something else that is about the work of reconciliation, restoration, and shalom. So here's how people that were in equal standing fought each other. They hit each other with the open, with the back, with the open side of their palm. So if he and I are equals in the first century and we were angry at each other and we're gonna go to blows, we would hit each other with the open side of our palm. And so I would smack Brody here, he would take his right hand and hit me on this cheek. Oh, thanks. You actually did it. That was really nice. I needed to wake up this morning. I didn't have enough coffee. I appreciate it. Okay. So that's what would happen if we were equals. If we were not equals, if I was the one that was the landowner and I had someone working on my property, whether I was paying them or whether they were a slave, in the first century, there was both things happening. If that person were to have violated the expectations of the landowner, because we are not equals, I would not slap him with an open hand because that would signify that you're my equal. Instead, I'm going to give him the back of my hand and I made him a scrunchy face because that's what you do when you sit on the back of the hand. You smack him like that, right? And so I give him the back of the hand. So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what he's saying is, now that you've gotten hit with the back of the hand as if you're less than, turn the other cheek and let that person know that you're to be treated as an equal. Because I can't 
hit your cheek with the back of my hand again if it's on this side. That's really awkward and it's not very powerful. Instead, if I'm going to hit you again on that cheek, I got to do it, uh-oh, as an equal. And so in that moment, what the person is doing is actually standing there nonviolently and saying, you will look at me as an equal. You don't get to treat me like that. I may work for you. This system may have put me in a position where everyone thinks I'm less than you, but that is not how the kingdom operates. That's not how God wants this to go. So I'm going to be seen by you differently. Okay, don't go anywhere, and I'm not going to have you act out the second one. Because for those of you that know exactly where I'm going, it's if someone sues you and wants to take your shirt, give them your coat as well. I'm not going to make you strip off your shirt, okay? I just want to be clear about that. So what's going on here? Somebody owes somebody a great debt. They have no way of repaying it. And the person has taken so much of what they own. You can actually just find a seat for a second because I don't want you to have to stand here awkwardly. Um, But I'm going to bring you back up because, you know, this is fun. So somebody owes a great debt and the person's going to recoup as much of that debt as possible. They're going to take their land. They might even sell off all of their possessions. Might In this culture, they could even sell off their family. And they're going to do anything they can to recoup the value of that debt. And in this story, Jesus says they're even going to sue you for your shirt. If you, have, if you are at this point, you literally have two items of clothing. You have a coat and a shirt because that's what was worn at that time, two items of clothing, an outer and an inner. And so if you only have two items of clothing and the person is willing to sue you for one of them, you're only left with one item of clothing. And so Jesus says, if they sue you for your coat, give them your shirt as well, or vice versa. If they take one, give them the other. Now, that sounds really awkward in our setting in the 21st century. And here's why. When someone is naked in our society, the shame is placed on the naked person. If we saw somebody running down the street, we would be like, I wonder what happened to them. And we might have empathy towards that and want to get them help. We might feel like, man, that person's really embarrassing themselves. We tend to see someone in that state as being a shameful situation. In the first century and in biblical times, When someone was naked, the shame was on the people viewing the nakedness. So the shame was put on someone who saw nakedness because they knew that there was a responsibility they had as a collectivist society to say that no one should be in that state. We have to take care of each other. And for someone to be at that point in their life where they have nothing on means that our community has failed. Our system has failed. We could probably learn something from that situation. That maybe if we see someone in such a dire situation that they are just without anything, that maybe it's on us more than it's on them. And so because the shame is on the people viewing the nakedness, when that person is sued and they get their coat, then they take off their shirt as well. They're basically saying, here, shame on you, not shame on me. I've tried to pay my debt. I've given you everything, including my coat. I have nothing left to give. And if you think that I'm going to survive in this world with just a shirt, 
you are totally missing the point. You have no empathy. You have no mercy. You have no forgiveness. This is not the way the world should operate to the point where you are making someone walk away with barely the shirt on their back. That is not a just, peaceful, loving society. How can you possibly do that to someone? And so you don't just expose your own nakedness. You expose their injustice by saying, shame on you for doing this to me. So that person, again, here's the theme, nonviolently says, you need to see what your actions are doing to me. You have to see what your willingness to sue me for the coat on my back is doing to me. Okay, Brody, come back up here. Third one. Go the extra mile. So first century, Roman army occupying Israel. Oftentimes they're going from one place to the other. Roman army has these big heavy packs. It's got all their gear. It's got their food rations. It's got the sword. It's got the, it's got the shield. It's got everything. These packs can weigh up to like 60, 70, 80, 90 pounds. And so they have to carry them for long stretches of time all day long from one place to the other. Carrying a pack like that would be awfully heavy if you're trudging through the desert, trudging through the, 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 the wilderness and all that kind of fun stuff. And so the Roman army had a policy. If you see someone that is not a Roman citizen or is not one of us, you can employ them, not employ, that's really the wrong wording. You can make them carry your pack for a mile. We're not going to make them carry the pack for two miles. That's just kind of mean. We're going to make them carry the pack for a mile. So if I'm a Roman soldier and I'm walking along and you're doing some gardening because you're trying to grow some crops for your family, I could see you. And even though you're hard at work and you're trying to support your family, I'd be like, hey, here's my pack. You get to carry it for a while. And then we would start trudging along and you'd be carrying my pack. We'd get to the end of the mile and be like, hey, give me my pack back. I don't want to get in trouble because I can't make you go two miles. Okay, give me my, thanks. All right, and then you have to walk all the way back to your home. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. Go the extra mile. Because as soon as you go, no, no, I got you. I got it. Don't worry. I'm going to keep going. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling spry. I had my coffee this morning. I got two miles in me. No big deal. You keep going. As soon as that mile gets crossed and you go the extra mile, if my superior officer sees what's going on, guess who's in trouble? Not you. You're right. It's me. I'm in trouble. And the shame and the guilt is on me because now I've overstepped the expectations of the commanding officer and the Roman army. And I have put you in a position that I shouldn't. And now you are putting me in a position where I'm like, oh man, what is going on here? And it makes me look at this entire system and say, maybe I shouldn't be making people carry my pack. Okay, you can go sit down. Um, everyone, Brody. And so the next time I walk through that village and I see this wonderful, supportive person, he's working hard, he's trying to raise a family, he's trying to get the crops to grow and waiting for the harvest, and I see him and, and, the, and the soldiers around me are like, hey, let's get that guy to carry our pack for a mile. No, 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 you don't want to mess with that guy. He will make, he will go two. He will go two miles and it will be really not good. You'll have to do a lot of push-ups. Don't, don't do it. We don't mess with that guy. That guy has an understanding that this isn't actually right and we need to respect that. So how do you change the system? How do you change the dynamic? You don't do it violently. You don't put more violence into circulation. You find what, what we often call the third way. What's the third way? Because peace is not passive submission. 
and it's definitely not permission to do what you want, but it's a demand for human dignity to be known, for human dignity to be known. In each of those instances, whether it's turning the other cheek, giving away the the shirt off your back, going the extra mile, you are essentially saying to the person oppressing you, you have to see me as human. I am not simply someone to be hit. I am not simply someone to have given away everything to, and I am not simply someone that's here to carry your bag for you. I am a human being, and I need to be seen. Being a peacemaker is about removing the barriers so that people can be seen. We have to see one another. And if we don't see one another, then we end up perpetuating systems and relationships that harm each other over and over and over again. We have to remove those barriers. We have to turn the other cheek. We have to give away the shirt. We have to go the extra mile. Why? So that there's a chance justice can happen. So that there's a chance we can move towards love. Because that's what Jesus is inviting us into. As I've been doing with this series, at the end of each sermon, we I, I'll read to you the 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 verse as it's written, um, and then I've been rewriting it based on how we've talked about it, how I've talked about it. And so today, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And then this way, God is on the side of those who take violence out of circulation and strive for human dignity to be known, for they are God's dear ones, those who inherit love justice, and grace. Let me pray. God, we are so grateful for this powerful, challenging word that you've spoke, that you passed on to your disciples and who have passed it on to us. God, it is so hard to turn the other cheek. It's so hard to put ourselves in a position where we're vulnerable, but it's that vulnerability that is actually so courageous because we're demanding to be seen. We're demanding to be fully human in the eyes of the other. And so God, may we be people who take violence out of circulation. May we be people who are willing to find a third way where we can help others see the dignity of being human all around us and then move towards building a world that is full of reconciliation, hope, justice, and love. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.